0: Mark Gasly here, the president of COGPS, and I want to bring your attention to our upcoming fall conference. This is the big deal. This is the big one. This is what we spend all year preparing to deliver to you so you get the best training, both experientially and didactically, in group psychotherapy. This year's conference is going to be at Cedar in Aurora, and the topic is Desire, Exploring Wishes, Fears, and Impulses in Group Psychotherapy. We're happy to announce that our keynote will be none other than Dr. Lucy Holmes, she talks about the intersection between feminism and modern psychoanalysis. So for more information, to buy your tickets. Right now they're on Early Bird, so they're cheaper. They're going to be going up September 1st. We're looking at this will definitely sell out, so getting your tickets early is important. If you really want to have a spot, you can find information on our website at www.cogps.org or on our Facebook page. We're also looking for people to present proposals. So if you're inspired by this podcast or by what we've been putting out as an organization, Please submit a proposal on our website. We're looking for people to run institutes and do both 90-minute and 180-minute workshops. Can't wait. Can't wait to see you there.
1: Welcome to the Group Dynamics Dispatch, the official podcast of the Colorado Group Psychotherapy Society. I'm your host, Angelo Ciliberti, and in this 50-minute hour, we will be featuring guests that use dynamic thinking and therapeutic interventions to bring about growth through group process. It's our hope that in listening to the podcast, you may just be inspired to think more deeply about your own experience in groups, as well as to hear what makes great group leaders tick. If you'd like to support the show, we would encourage you to leave us a review on iTunes or buy one of our recommended books through Amazon that are featured on our webpage, www.cogps.org. Also, check out our social media pages at Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, The links to our profiles will be in the description below. If you have any feedback for the podcast or ideas for feature guests, subjects, or panels, please feel free to email us. We're at coloradogroups at gmail.com. We really appreciate your listening and support and hope to see you at one of our events. So I'm your host, Angelo, broadcasting from beautiful Boulder, Colorado, and I'm inviting you to pull up a seat, lend an ear, and hear about what's happening in the ever-evolving circle of group dynamics. Well, welcome to the Group Dynamics Dispatch. Today we are incredibly honored to have Hillary Callan-Curtis. Hillary Callan-Curtis is a clinician in private practice currently based in Northampton, Massachusetts. She specializes in individual and group counseling and conducts clinical consultation groups, both in her office and remotely using online services. She received her MA in contemplative psychotherapy from Naropa University, and then spent five years working on parent child attachment research at the University of Rochester, where she received extensive training in attachment theory and child therapy. Concurrently, Hillary received advanced training in modern psychoanalytic theory and group therapy at the Center for Group Studies, which she has been attending since 2006. She has presented at the American Group Psychotherapy Association Conference on pregnancy and group psychotherapy and has co-facilitated group psychotherapy trainings for clinicians in St. Petersburg, Russia with the Center for Group Studies. Hillary's clinical work is also informed by her 20 years of committed body practice and her dedication to her husband and two rambunctious children. Hilary, welcome to the podcast. Hi there. It's wonderful to have you.
2: Wonderful to be here.
1: And one of the things I might say in addition to that uh, wonderful bio that I just read is that Hillary is going to be joining us for the COGPS conference in just a few weeks.
2: So excited. It's going to be
1: wonderful. We're excited to have you. So the first question that we like to ask our guests on the podcast is to tell us a little bit about um, your story, how you got into this field, and how you got into group psychotherapy to begin with.
2: Mm. Well, um, I was a very communicatively precocious child. Um, And like many in our field, had a very complicated emotional relationship Um, with my family of origin and sought out a lot of contact to soothe what I perceived to be a lot of isolation and loneliness. So um, I really used the skills that I was born with um, to what felt like survive. And uh, I was always very, very drawn to immediacy and very, very drawn to um, truth whatever truth means. Some people talking about what was actually going on. Mm -hmm. Um, So by the time I got to Naropa, um, I, uh, I was studying, I got my bachelor's in early childhood education before my master's. Um, It was a very, very grounding program. I was a very cranky resistant student of Buddhism and everything they were teaching me. and they were uh um, very gracious about letting me have all my feelings and uh, um, training me to be with them. It was also my introduction to sitting practice, which uh really I didn't know at the time, but what it was introducing me to was um, the repetition compulsion, because I was uh, observing my mind, watching my thoughts, and um starting to notice what would continue to come up and come up and come up. So it was actually an introduction to the idea uh, that my mind goes back to the same old crap over and over and over. Um, It was also training in the discipline of being friendly with that, with that whole process. So it was in the context of working with children and being uh, compassionate with their process also. But... I didn't realize at the time that I was receiving my own training from my own sort of early childhood. I was kind of redoing it there at Naropa, um, and it was a wonderful program. So, um, self reflection was very prioritized in the early childhood education program, um, as was the discipline with mine and the, the curious attitude. And I realized when I was there that I was much more adept at working with the children themselves and with. The dynamics of their family systems than I was at actually running a classroom, so um, I did some traveling and then I came back and started the contemplative psychotherapy program, so I could do more with um, people as opposed to with teaching itself, and um, it was great. The contemplative psychotherapy program, as you know, Angelo, was it's wonderful, and it was a, a it's a cohort model, and it felt very much um, like I was part of something which is something i had been really seeking sort of continually in my life. So um, it was uh, a lot of time together, a lot of retreat time, a lot of class time, a lot of group time, a lot of time together in that model. And it uh, there was uh, sort of nowhere to escape my own patterns in my own mind. Um, and that's actually also where I met Lou Ormont and Joan Ormont in 1999. They did a workshop at the Shambhala Center in 1999. And um, I had had no exposure to group, formal group, anything. I had not taken the, the famous group class at Naropa yet. Um, I just was doing a workshop because I needed a couple credits and I liked things at the Shambhala Center. I was practicing a lot at the time. And it was a workshop where uh, Lou gave lectures in the morning, at Saturday and Sunday, Lou gave lectures in the morning and then in the afternoon, one afternoon, we did a workshop with Lou. One afternoon, you switched and did a workshop with Joan. And I um, I don't remember much about modern analytic theory from that weekend at all. But I do remember that they were modeling the gentleness that I was learning with my own mind and my own process. It was it was very, very similar to what I was getting trained in, uh, both that I had been trained in my bachelor's degree, but also that I was currently getting trained in in my master's program. It felt very resonant um and they did a pretty amazing job of managing this particular group of people who um it was all ranks of naropa there were people who were acharyas there were people who were students like me there were teachers there were you know the the woman who did the financial aid like it was all kinds of people and lou and joan found a way to really honor uh the different positions of everyone while allowing us all to be vulnerable together in a way that um, I was very very impressed by, so um, so that was where when I met them. The uh, the um, of course the group class at Naropa was very exciting and very um, uh, inspiring in many ways. And the videos we watched got me very interested in modern psychoanalysis. Um, But I sort of put it aside for a while and um, graduated from Naropa. I'd done an internship in um, maternal child psychotherapy at the Community Infant Project, which I don't think exists anymore at Boulder County Mental Health. But um, I was doing a lot of work with moms and babies. And I ended up at the U of R um, doing attachment research, being a clinician on attachment research studies um, and that was actually when I got interested, uh, in, introduced to group supervision for the first time. It was a just a fantastic training model. It was my indoctrination into mainstream psychology, for sure. I'd really been out there with my two degrees from the crazy Buddhist university. And the University of Rochester, Like, uh, it was a very overwhelming, strange experience to be in such a, a, a mainstream environment. But it was great. It was great. And they... Um, We had uh, both, we would film our sessions with children and film our sessions with our um, parent-child dyads we were working with and then we would present them to each other. And it was very, very vulnerable and and, um, humiliating often. And it was handled with such gentleness. It was handled with such intelligence and such um, curiosity and i was uh i was really hooked at the idea of group supervision at that point and i was really surprised having left this contemplative environment that it was the uh sort of more mainstream environment that that really uh hooked me in that way but it, but it did happen um so the other wonderful many wonderful things about the university of rochester but another wonderful thing is that they had um An educational benefit stipend, and so um, I was in analysis, and I um, they were willing to pay for the Center for Group Studies in New York. So I um, I enrolled. Um, I had found a pamphlet that I'd been given in the group class at Naropa, and kind of put it all together that this might be a way to get various needs met. So I. I enrolled and um, was blown away by the resonance that I felt in the uh, theoretical community and the literal community. The um, The prioritizing of immediacy was something I'd never experienced before. Uh, and the discipline around um, really talking about what was happening was I felt like what I'd been seeking my whole life in terms of people being honest and real about what was going on. Um, it was uh, it was uh, there was a lot of mirroring I felt between um, what I'd learned at Naropa about basic goodness, and um, and what I was learning in modern psychoanalysis about um, me being enough. There was a. The, what I what I am is enough. There's a phrase that's often used in modern psychoanalysis um, that who you are is an agent of change. Using who you are as an agent of change instead of uh, you know trying to be someone else, and it felt so resonant and uh, familiar after all that time at Naropa. Um, so it was wonderful, and um, it was very hard putting your thoughts and feelings into words in the moment is very very hard. It's a very hard discipline, but I was hooked and, um, and it tremendously.
1: Well, that's wonderful. I mean, it's such a rich, um, variety of different educational settings that you had.
3: Yeah.
1: And there's a theme that stands out to me though, around, even from undergrad at Naropa graduate at Naropa, um, advanced training and research at university of Rochester center for group studies. There's a kind of theme that jumps out to me around, um, really, Relating to both individually and even environmentally with what is the kind of earliest edge of experience. Yes. That kind of primitive edge of our mind and how we experience ourselves most internally and how we experience our connection with other people. Yes. And the kind of maitri that you talk about, I mean, that's a sort of a word um, that gets used at Naropa to connote that kind of gentleness or friendliness towards our experience
2: mm-hmm. that
1: came up both with Naropa and with Ormont and Center for Group mm-hmm. Studies.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: What's wonderful?
2: I've been very, very lucky. Yeah. I've been very lucky. I also have to say, I give... Um, I give my mother credit for setting up a scenario where I would be able to find the right group settings because she my parents did not have uh much training in emotional communication they had pretty much none and weren't able to offer me any of that but what they and especially she offered me was she found me um two different formative environments that were very challenging and listened to me both uh, the the church church community that I grew up in that didn't really care. I didn't believe in God, which was so wonderful. And the um, uh, educational environment that I was raised in, 13 years in the same private school that was very small. And I had these two holding environments. uh, So I associated to group as good. And uh, I, I have been able to find different groups to continue that pattern. So I do really credit her for that. It wasn't an accident. She worked very hard to find those Uh, environments for me.
1: Wow. So she was a good enough mother in a way, in the sense that she found environments that can meet the maturational needs that she was struggling to do. Absolutely. Absolutely. Wow. And then there's all, there's just this huge um, wealth of experience that you've had with child and mother experiences and research. And it makes me wonder how that informs your clinical practice.
2: Well, um, I do actually work quite literally with many, uh, mothers and children. Um, but I think it actually, um, I've lived in it so long that the transferential relationship of mother is something that I, um, I don't know, I can fully embody. It feels like I, I'm very lucky to have, have spent so much time in that sort of very, uh, studying of the infantile moments, <laughs> you know, the symbiotic, uh, era that, um, it, it feels very natural for me to go there with clients. And in terms of a group setting, um, it feels very natural for me to to be... Uh, um, I have a mind and a body that's very interested in consistent uh, observation and attunement.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: So, um, And in my real parenting life, I'm very used to um, being called out on my crap because my kids let me know when I'm a super failure. So that actually is as important as all of this training. I mean, being with my children has been the best lesson for being a group leader because they'll just call me out. immediately. <laughs> so I've gotten very used to it.
1: Yeah. It's the best training Institute there is.
2: It's the best training Institute there
1: is. Yes. It's like the group that you never get away from.
2: Yeah, absolutely.
3: Uh-huh.
1: Yeah. <laughs> well, you mentioned the body, and you mentioned the way that you sense and relate and attune in, in such a uh, body-centered way. Even in mm. the bio, you mentioned that you have 20 years of a committed body practice, and I was wondering if you would tell us a little bit about that, about your history with body practice and how you see that informing your group mm-hmm. work,
3: your clinical work.
2: Well, um, well, while I was at Naropa, um, I, um, I was concurrently doing... Um, very uh, uh disciplined somatic training with Annie Brooke a uh, a woman and uh clinician in Boulder um i was meeting with her and doing a lot of body mind centering work and and a lot of movement study and um and she actually then suggested that i do analysis which was the best invitation, um, and a a surprising one from a somatic therapist. She really was attuned to what I needed. But anyway, she, um, not she, yes, kind of she, it wasn't just she, that was Naropa. I actually learned a lot about how, uh, from Annie, but also from the the movement practices I was doing, um, how the body experiences it's I, I, I guess I have an assumption that the body experiences this environment and then the mind free pre-associates or attacks itself or does whatever, but that the first thing it does, uh, the first thing that we do is as a body experience our environment before there's any words. Um, so I, I, um, I feel like I, it, I've, uh, they sort of all overlap for me, but, it, but the, the parallels between, uh, body practice and sitting practice and modern psychoanalytic theory are very resonant for me. They all feel like they have an aspect of discipline to them and an aspect of sort of uh, free, associ- free association. So, um, you know, in my literal body practice, they, there was this sense of, um, I studied some dis- disciplined body practices, Ashtanga yoga, Iyengar younger yoga. I was uh, you know, there was, they have form to them and there was, uh, I could join the form and the more I joined the form, the more fun I had in the more free associative parts of body dancing or contact improv or uh, authentic movement and vice versa. The more I could get into contact improv, authentic movement, the more I would be able to rest into the form. So they felt like a very, um, you know, it felt like a, a, a wonderful loop. And I've had the same experience with sitting. The more I could sit, be in the form of watching my breath and coming back to the breath, and doing it every morning, and you know the discipline of it, the more relaxation I'd have with my mind. So, um, and the same goes for psychoanalytic theory, to me at least. There, you know, the more I work with the discipline of putting my thoughts and feelings into words, which very much reminds me of coming back to the breath, coming back to the breath, put the thoughts and feelings into words, put the thoughts and feelings into words. You know, the more I work with that discipline the more fun I can have with all my thoughts and feelings and words. So it, it, it's felt very, um, sort of all encompassing. Um, and I did, um, I did teach yoga in, in between, uh, while I was having my first child, I, I spent some years teaching yoga in between uh, graduate school and the university of Rochester. And it was really my introduction to group leading groups. And, um, I'd done a little bit at Naropa, but it it was the first time, and I, I, I had an introduction of leading groups with body, as opposed to with words. Of course, you speak as a yoga teacher, but um, the counter-transference that I was reading from the group is how I would inform what we would do. And the individual counter-transference, as I would do adjustments with people, uh, felt like I was learning about somatic communication between us, but it really was a counter-transference experience in the body, the way I have with clients now, even though we're... The form is that we are sitting, we're not doing yoga, we're talking, but my body is still experiencing um, a whole range of feelings.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, it's such a rich description, Hillary, of of how it sounds like you're able to play in the overlapping space between form and formlessness. Yeah. And then the way those kind of mutually influence each other and enhance one another. Yeah. So that you can be more spontaneous. Yeah. With yourself, with your mind, with your clients. Right. And I was thinking about um, how you talk about leading yoga classes and how that was a preparation for stepping into group and what that experience kind of conveys about being with the, just the raw data of the body Yep. and the uh, the kind of affective resonance that goes on in a very non-cognitive kind of pre-symbolic way. Mm-hmm. And then the way you're able to translate that into how you sense what's happening in the group and respond to it.
2: Okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I had wonderful training in this. This isn't like it came uh, 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 naturally or easily. I I had an interest in it, but this is, it has been so modeled for me in my training, um, how to live in your body and live in your body in an environment. I mean, it just, I I just, I don't know. I have to give it that much credit because I'm I'm just uh, floored by how lucky I've been to have it modeled for me in the bodies and minds of the people that I've trained with.
3: Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. And just the, um, the years of that, I mean, both from analysis and both from having a body practice. Yeah. Yeah. If somebody were to be listening to this and to be really inspired by that idea, but wondering how they can access their body more and use that kind of information in order to understand what might be happening non-verbally for a client or for their groups, what comes to mind for you in
3: terms of something you might suggest for them?
2: Hmm. Well, I would be hesitant to suggest a specific body practice for anyone because it's so individual, but it seems to me um, working out probably in, in an analytic way how what nourishes your body. I mean, that was one of the most wonderful things about adjusting people is that um, just like every intervention you use is going to be completely different uh, in the verbal interventions you use in groups, every single adjustment you do is going to feel a little bit different on someone's body. So um, I don't know that I have a direct answer because it feels so personal.
3: Mm-hmm. But
2: um, I would say to, uh, that there is a way in for everyone.
3: Mm-hmm. I
2: mean, I've worked with folks before with physical disabilities uh, that make any of these forms, like going to the yoga class, very difficult, but they can still find, uh, if you keep looking, there's always something that will help you resonate Um, and learn about it.
1: Well, I was even thinking just the invitation for people to think about what nourishes their bodies puts them in direct relationship with their bodies. Yeah. It's kind of being receptive to the feedback of what feels pleasurable.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Well, in addition to this, I'm also thinking this is perhaps another body practice, but you're a singer. I'm a singer. You're a singer. Yes would you share with us a little bit about that part of your life and how that has informed you and uh, you becoming that kind of agent of change you were talking about before?
2: Sure. Um, I, um, before I I went to Naropa I studied classical voice after a lifetime of, um, studying piano and a high school time of studying voice. Um, Uh, again, I, I have such I have such strong positive transference with all of my teachers, but I had a had and have because we've reconnected a wonderful, wonderful uh, uh, teacher, voice teacher, Deborah Vanderland in New York City, who um, really trained me in um, my body as an instrument. So I wasn't playing the flute; I actually had to figure out uh how to um express with music what was going on internally and put it forth. So it was a uh it was, it's really an embodied craft singing in the same in a very similar way that I think of um psychotherapy. It's very, very embodied craft. And um, you know, might be stretching the metaphor a little, but it it definitely resonates for me. I, there was something about um you know, when you're a singer, you unless you're singing a cappella, you are waiting for the correct moment to come in and join and be part of. You're usually waiting, you're usually not the beginning. You're waiting for the orchestra, you're waiting for the piano, you're waiting for the other singers for your harmony part. And while you're waiting, you're just sitting there, maybe you're anxious, maybe you're excited, maybe you're bored, like who knows what's going on. But then there's a moment and you can feel it's the right moment to come in. Um and it, it, it very much reminds me of group work. I did a lot of choral work. Um, so it, it, it felt very group oriented in that way. But um, it it feels very similar, sort of the moment of when would it be harmonious for me to join this right now? Or when am I kind of like this weird note coming in and jarring and ah, nobody wants to you know, which I've, I do plenty of that too. But, um, and hope to learn from it. But when is the right moment for this, Embodied art. W- when is the moment for this voice to join this chorus of voices? Um, it feels, you know, I started from a a long time ago checking that out, that idea out.
1: Well, and I was thinking as you were saying that that it also it it just speaks to what a practice of presence it is, like moment by moment attention and awareness in terms of what's happening for you, yeah, for the for the group, whether it's a choral group or whatever it may be, yeah. And then thinking about the kind of nonverbal dimensions of voice, and the ways that we can use voice, and mm-hmm. to both match or to harmonize, but to also kind of be an affective resonance with right. Them.
2: Well, it, there's there's a there's a whole training in because I was studying operatic stuff also. There's a whole training in the acting element, and of how to be in my voice but a different character, and often as um, an, an an analyst, I have to shape shift. Uh, I am now your mother, I am now your brother, I am now whatever uh, you need me to be actually right now. And it, um, there are different timbres to those voices as I respond to people. And it's not conscious. Mm -hmm. It's like entering in with, you know, it's different than reading a score. So it's a little different than classical music because there is no score. (laughs) But there is, um, it's more like, you know, the folk circle where you join in with some harmony that no one's ever heard before. So, but it, it still has that feeling to it. Like, w- what voice does this environment need right now? Who do, who does this environment need me to be? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And what can I, you know, I may not be able to, to do that right now. I can do my best, but I can, uh, we'll see. We'll see if I can, if that's in my range today.
3: Right.
1: And in the moment. Yeah. And I was thinking about how, just um speaking in those kind of different voices or singing to a, a group or to a client really
3: mm-hmm.
1: in a different voice actually reaches a different part of the brain. It's more yeah. limbic it's it's not right. like you're speaking to the frontal cortex
2: well, there's also lullabying right so back to the mother infant stuff there's a lot of resonant i mean i even I'm talking to you in it all of a sudden, right my voice is changing yes. but there's a there's a soothing lullaby that Many clients need to hear, especially when they um, are very scared. Mm -hmm. So uh, being able to access that feels very important to me. Mm
3: -hmm.
2: And again, I can credit my children with teaching me how to do that well, (laughs) Mm -hmm. because the the (laughs) impetus was there with them and I can access it now.
1: Well, I was thinking to be able to attune to them in that kind of way, and then, then have moments where you don't, as any of us do, when we have those kind of um, emotional or affective kind of ruptures into the, in the relationship,
3: mm-hmm. and
1: the anger, the frustration, the disappointment of that, but then how all of that gets kind of reincorporated into the work itself. Mm-hmm. I wonder anything that might come to mind for you just around those themes
3: around rupture and repair.
2: Hmm. I guess um, one of the, the first thing that comes to mind when I think of rupture and repair is um, it's just another, uh, um, it's just another event. So in some ways, something to be very aware of and in some ways something to accept just happens. Ah, we've ruptured again.
3: Right.
2: And, um, listening actually feels more important than, than I, I, I don't even want to go to repair. Like it's more like the listening about the rupture, like staying curious about the rupture. The repair seems to sort of, sort itself of out. If you're actually listening and not resisting, the repair just emerges in my experience. Mm-hmm. So, um, I noticed myself slow my own pacing down when you asked, because that's, that's sort of my response. When there's a rupture uh, I, I slow down mm-hmm. because there's actually so much to learn.
3: Mm-hmm. Kind of decelerate.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
3: Well, it makes me think also of just um, with this incredibly kind of rich
1: experience and training that you've had, where do you see yourself going now?
3: Oh. And for Hillary in her current life and in her current kind of professional development.
2: Well, um, you know, I feel like the first 35 years of my life were, um, and treatment and experience and taking it all in those whole first 35 years, which were very luscious in many ways, were also, um, kind of basic in terms of, uh, just making friends with my mind, just living in my body, making friends with my mind. They felt- um,
1: Making prints with your mind is basic?
2: Well, I mean, <laughs> not basic, but it felt like uh, I'm a slow student at it.
1: Uh-huh, uh, aren't we all?
2: Yes, and it felt um, necessary. It felt like a uh, uh, part of survival. You know, when, I, when new ideas would come my way, I'd either say, ugh, that's too hard, I don't wanna do it. Or I'd say, oh my God, I gotta know that. There was this like panic, mm-hmm. a grasping panic, push or pull or push, push. or pull and in the past 5 to 7 years um i feel like i've started a whole different era that i you know i'm hoping i last into my 90s so that i can have a whole other you know long ass era <laughs> um enjoying more therapy as craft and um, the pleasure of it the new idea that comes around that i'm so excited to chew on mm-hmm. as opposed to the new idea that comes around that might save me or the new you know um There was so many, you know, there were so many things I was learning and all of them I think I was hoping would fix it. Even though every single one of them said, we're not fixing you. But I still was hoping, can you fix it? Um, Fix my humanness and my pain. Mm -hmm. And now I'm much more in the space of, oh, you've got pain too? Let's talk. You know, I'm much more um, curious. It's more playful. What'd you say? It's more playful. Way more playful. And I'm just constantly floored by how much I have to learn. It's just, <laughs> I'm, I'm just humbled daily by, um, by how much more there is for me to, to experience. So it feels like I'm, I'm much more in a, um, and you know, the other, the other piece is as I'm starting to train others, I'm learning about how much you learn from teaching and how much you learn from other people experiencing what you're saying and how you say and how much they have to add to whatever you're saying i mean it's it's phenomenal
1: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and so the second half is much more about um coming from a place of engagement and and a playful kind of relatedness versus it being about desperation yeah get something that you're missing or lacking and now yeah more of a secure place of playing and seeing where it was seeing where it goes
2: it took me over 20 years to believe what what i don't even know if i believe it fully but to even get close to believing <laughs> that um, I am the agent of my own change or I am basically good or, you know, these things. Sure, theoretically, I was in at age 20, but at this point, i actually, I can feel it much more in my body. You're I can feel- you know. good things.
1: What'd you say? You're filled with good things. You're filled with things that uh, you can offer and can be of help.
2: Yeah, I'm also still a royal pain in the ass. So, I mean, you know, <laughs> there's all of it. It's
3: a mixed <laughs> it's bag.
2: Totally a mixed bag, yeah. yeah.
3: Yeah.
1: Well, as you mentioned, kind of looking at and thinking about what's going to be the next thing in this career that you get to play with, I was wondering anything that might come to mind in terms of areas that you're really excited to explore and find out more about.
2: It really feels like um, this next era is about broadening and it's about um, contact with more people. It's about teaching more. It's about learning about co-leadership. It's about uh, receiving feedback on. Um, how I'm presenting in that role, in that role of co-leader and and uh, of teacher and of um, someone who's been around for a bit. Not, I don't want to say a while, but a bit, because I still feel lucky to be very young and have a lot more time to learn.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: So, kind of exploring. Yeah. Exploring, seeing where things go, getting feedback on what ha- what's happening next.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And. I'm starting this doctoral program in January. You are? I am, yes, at the Professional School of Psychology. And that is going to be very, very exciting. Um, It is going to be a very, very different group experience. There's a lot of people with a lot of different languages coming in. And um, it's going to be the most normal thing I've ever done, at at the University of Rochester, notwithstanding. Um, And I'm very much looking forward to seeing how. broader systems look at group. So uh, organizational systems and industrial systems and political systems, and um, I am going to get exposure to all of that in this program. So it does feel like uh, an opportunity for me to take my language and the language of, of, of group that I understand and modern psychoanalytic language and apply it to much broader systems. Because mm-hmm. as we've talked about in this interview, I have been very focused on mom, baby, or mama and a group of kids on the playground. Mm-hmm. So it's, um, this feels bigger. And my mind hasn't gone there much. So I, I think it'll be a wonderful challenge.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, the interfacing comes to mind. You're going to be kind yes. of taking your language and interfacing with all of these different systems and
3: yeah.
1: views and languages. And that's an international program. Yes. I was thinking about all the different international students that you might get a chance to engage with and interact with.
2: Yeah. It's going to be very fun. Very rich. Yes. And challenging. Speaking of zealotry, which we are presenting on in two weeks, um, all of my zealotrous you know, inclinations I think will be challenged, which is great news. Mm -hmm. So, um,
1: Yes. And that speaks to kind of the heart of the presentation because we are uh, going to be co-presenting together and we get a chance to co-lead together at the Colorado conference. Yes, we do. And I was thinking it might uh, be interesting for us to talk a little bit on this interview about that presentation and the kind of heart of it. I think in some ways we're, we're already really uh, touching on it, which is yes. uh, the presentation is called The Defended Zealot, um, Theoretical Rigidity Versus Uncertainty in Our Professional Identities and it really is talking about this kind of impulse to get rigid and to collapse space and to even turn off the body in a way out of a desire to avoid uncertainty and spontaneity and confusion. Mm -hmm. And uh, since it's lining up so perfectly with um, what you're exploring and moving into professionally and even educationally, I was wondering what comes to mind for you in terms of why this might feel like kind of a juicy uh, or sort of luscious
2: topic right now. Well, um, I know that in my sort of lifelong search for home and being part of, I have really paid my dues with being a zealous jerk. (laughs) And um, I have had a lot of confusion in my life regarding um, uh, sort of what loyalty means and commitment means. And, uh, I, what's coming to mind right now is those stickers that are on the back of Ford's and I think it's Chevy's. And there's like a character urinating on the Chevy sign. And then there's a character urinating on the, so, um, and, and as silly as those are, I totally get it. I totally resonate with, it's like, I'm really part of this. If I minimize or insult the competition, like I, you know, I'm gonna pee on you, Chevy. I'm gonna pee on you, for Like, what? There's some sense of um, instead of any kind of curiosity, where, huh? Maybe they have something to teach me. It's like, nope. I'm just gonna be, you know, I'm gonna be better than. I'm above really them. Get it? And um, I, I felt it. Uh, like, I'm now, I'm now one of them. So, but I have to tell you, I have tried zealotry in friend groups, in food groups, in clinical methodology, in yoga styles it has not worked yet. Never. It's only made my life feel more um, confined, more rigid, tighter. I feel it in my body. My breath, I don't breathe as deeply. Nothing has ever been helpful about it. And yet I still have to notice it and work with it so consistently. The logic of it, I understand it's dumb. It doesn't matter. There's more of a felt experience uh, that has trained me to, to sort of slow down when I feel my myself going in that direction. To sense it, yeah. I will also say that I think that modern psychoanalytic groups um, fundamentally challenge zealotry by um, observing and investigating um, subgrouping because they they ch- any time you are joining with someone, not anytime. I'm sure subgroups happen that we can't catch, but in general, when there's a major subgroup going on in a group, we talk about it. So the sort of uh, malice and rage that can emerge um, can just be malice and rage. They don't have to harm. They, they don't have to, uh, they can just exist as difference as opposed to better thaning. Um, so there's a whole different uh, um, opportunity and invitation to explore resistance rather than, uh sort of devoid of the judgment. Uh, the, the structure is, oh, look, You want to piss on Chevy. Let's talk about that. You know, and Chevy, how do you feel about it? Ford's pissing on you. Uh And
1: what words go with the piss? What'd you say? What words go with the piss?
2: Right, right. What would you be able to right? What what is that piss saying? What would you say instead of piss on Ford? Right? So I I love that. It keeps it keeps the mind really flexible. And it keeps us from getting into it. It also exposes the shameful act of wanting to piss on others. It's just part of life. It's part of humanness. So um, I love that. I love that modern uh, analysis really encourages that.
1: Mm-hmm. I love that too, and it makes me really hope that the people in our presentation will call us out on the fact that uh, we both, you and I, might have a uh, a drive or a pull to get zealous about modern analysis.
2: Absolutely, absolutely, because you know everything's got its own crazy.
1: <laughs> okay. sure. Yes. Represent on what we most need to learn.
2: Absolutely. we, but is what we most need to learn.
1: Yes? It is a drive. And I think that's some of what we're trying to address is that even though it's not logical, even though it's not uh, fully enjoyable, it doesn't end well. Zealotry so no. doesn't have a tendency to um, to, to make things um, more expanded and related. Mm-hmm. But there's a part of us that just does it anyway.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And
1: perhaps that's that kind of react, that reaction to fear and aggression that just immediately comes up that we yep. want Collapse in that kind of way and dominate.
2: Yeah. yeah. Well, and uh, it also feels like we have the opportunity in running groups because there are so more, so many more perspectives on everything. It seems to me that the zealous impulses get exposed in a way that they might stay more hidden in individual work because you can really get into a symbiosis where you kind of lose the fact that the culture you're creating can be a very closed system.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And once you hit a group, there's nowhere to hide. There's nowhere to hide. My group is, I hope, is not gonna let me get away with any of that. They're gonna let me know. I hope, if I'm, if I'm training them well. <laughs> and uh, I, we will all be observing each other and noticing when things are getting sort of uh, uh, one directional mm-hmm. as opposed to uh, room for all different mm-hmm. experiences. Mm-hmm. So group is an amazing, um, uh, it dissolves, it has the opportunity to dissolve these um, tendencies. Not, not that you're not still gonna have the impulse, but to actually act on it, to actually piss on the Chevy thing. You know, that's very different than the desire to want to. It's, it's very different.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, there's some more reactions happening in the room. So even as somebody's talking, there's, there's some people that are identifying and then mm-hmm. there's some people that are getting aggressive or hating or responding to that idea in, that, in a kind of a very dissonant way. Yeah, like you really uh, prioritize creating the kind of culture where all of that could constantly be happening and churning and new things could be generating out of that kind of tension and friction and conflict.
2: Right. Right. I also, you know, spending a lot of years in the, in the Buddhist and yoga communities is a, is a great training in <laughs> zealotry. <laughs> so being able to be in them and not get swallowed up and suffocated and, um, Uh, uh, you know, by, by those communities is um, it's wonderful training for being a group leader, because it's so easy to just kind of drink that Kool-Aid and yes, that is the one way that is the way I will stand or eat or be, or believe, or, I mean, it's very um, it's, it's, if you can sort of walk out of there and know who you are, you're well on your way to being able to run a group, I think.
1: Well, and I think that that also really speaks to the power of the unconscious, because these are communities and sanghas and organizations that are committed to ideas of flexibility and openness and spontaneity, and yet, even there within, there's all of this kind of drive to have the idea that this methodology achieves those ends much better and faster than that other methodology. And I think you do in Buddhist practice and yoga and and all of these different kind of places, psychoanalysis. Yes. There's Modern
2: psychoanalysis, There's everybody.
1: Psychoanalysis. Therapy, it's everywhere. It's just, yes. it's something that constantly emerges. But I think one of the takeaways of the presentation is also looking for those areas and those places, both interrelationally, but also um, intrapsychically, where we resist zealotry, where it doesn't, it can't stick together, it can't hold together, it dissolves. And I think the unconscious is one of those places, as well as the body
2: yes I mean in some ways, the body is always the unconscious uh it's the sort of speaking for the unconscious you can you can you you can sit with the body and know what's happening without any words mm-hmm. so um yeah i it feel, it feel i agree with you. <laughs>
3: because it also feels
1: like the body has a very difficult time lying
2: that's what i'm saying you can't hide anything it's like a group your body is like one one group
1: (laughs) so our minds and and, uh, voices might be communicating one thing but the body is communicating something very differently
2: yeah so the more we can actually have training in listening to it um, the more as clinicians we'll be able to actually do our job and get out of the way of our clients.
3: Absolutely. Like you're saying, I mean, to actually even be open and
1: receptive to uh, learning from them and, and and learning from them how we should be responding to them Mm -hmm. rather than going in with a kind of prefabricated idea.
2: Oh, I always tell them, you know, way more about you than I do. So why don't you tell me? Right. Because how the heck I've only known you for X amount of years or days or whatever. You've known you since you were you. So it's very frustrating. Clients really don't like that. They really, really want you to answer and tell them. Mm -hmm. I don't think unconsciously they want you to, but man, they want you to fix it. Yeah. Well, who doesn't want an omnipotent parent? Oh, Oh. of course. Of course. Make it better
3: now. Right. You're supposed to have the answer. Absolutely. Yeah.
1: Well, this has been so much fun, Hillary, and I am thrilled to be presenting with you in a couple of weeks. I think we're gonna have uh, just a tremendous amount of fun playing together. Yes. And so that presentation is gonna be happening on November 12th, the conference is November 11th and 12th. Uh, but in the meantime, if uh, people are, that are listening to this wanna follow up with you, are interested in consultation with you, or joining one of your distance consultation groups, how would people best uh, follow up with you? How could people contact you?
2: Well, my email, Is Hillary, H-I-L-A-R-Y, dot Callan C-A-L-L-A-N, at gmail.com. Wonderful. Or they can just come to the Colorado Group Psychotherapy Conference in two weeks. And they can meet you in person. Yeah, I'd love that.
1: Yeah. Well, wonderful. Thank you so much for taking this time to be on the interview, and we will look forward to seeing you in Colorado soon.
3: Thank you, Angela. It's been lots of fun.